Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And on today's episode, we're actually talking to someone who's um, taking a very interesting role in the product development phase. We have Pro Sturgio from Sport Product Testing at the Canadian Sports Institute uh, joining us today. And he's been critically involved in the development and R&D phases of a lot of different products going back a number of years, uh, actually. And he was involved in some of the, uh, the first footpod work, I believe. And this is how we got the, the recommendation. But uh, a colleague of mine, Ken Fife, and uh, Pro had worked together, I guess it was close to 20 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's close to 20 years ago. Time flies. Yeah. So did I get the introduction right for you? I was a little bit worried about nailing all the uh, the different definitions and the uh, the places you were working. No, that was correct. You know, thank you very much for the introduction. So Pro, why don't you, uh, if you don't mind, telling telling us some of the products that you guys have been involved in, uh, just to give uh, our listeners a little bit of context. The ones that you're allowed to talk about anyway. Sure, absolutely. I guess I could talk high level about the different products that we actually, you know, help companies understand and make their products better. So at Sport Product Testing, we help companies understand their products and make their products better. We don't actually design, engineer products. Um, however, we take products at various different um, stages in the development cycle and help companies understand how those products are interacting with the human, how they're interacting with the human with respect to um, the human product interaction related to biomechanics or the movement of the individual and or the physiology of the individual. And physiology can take many different definitions, but also understanding how that product generally feels for that particular individual. So it all encompasses the fit, feel, function of that particular product and how that <clears throat> how that actually works with that, uh, that human being. So as a couple of examples of products or products that we've been working on um, with customers, we've done um, quite a bit of work um, using wearable technology and understanding how wearable technology, risk-based wearable technology works with an individual. Um, specifically, uh, can talk about this because this is published uh, data, is that we did um, a study for uh, Polar, Polar Electro, to understand how accurate optical heart rate is compared to truth. So we did a very specific study to understand how accurate during running and walking and cycling and rest as well too and lifting weights, um, how accurate the measurement of heart rate from the wrist using optical, um, an optical system was uh, compared to uh, an ECG or the, or the truth. So we were interested, or the customer was interested in, in looking at how accurate their system was for actually measuring heart rate. Further to that, um, we would have done what was called a usability study with that particular product in which we were to give this product to a certain amount of individuals to be using for a next period of time and then coming back to tell us about the use of that product. So the fit, feel, hmm. function of that product um, and understanding not only how that product functions, but all the data that's being collected from that product, um, what is that consumer and user actually using with that data and what are they finding interesting and why are they finding that kind of information interesting? Because we know that in the wearable technology world, all these products are collecting a bunch of data, 
um, but really how is that particular person using it? So those are a couple of different examples, but we've also been involved in product testing uh, related to footwear. Um, so understanding how uh, biomechanically footwear works to help either reduce the chance of injuries or improve performance. So we've done a lot of work there. And then we've done some work in some other types of sports equipment and or apparel as well too, um, related to, again, various different questions that the customer might have, um, either claims that they're making about their products and or understanding sort of the basics of a new material, a new design, a new whatever uh, related to to how that's that's helping that end user, which would be an athlete or a regular sort of um, person, not just athletes uh, related to their to their sport products. And as someone who looks at data quite a bit, I do appreciate having this third party testing aspect because a lot of the claims that manufacturers make, you sometimes question when they don't have any published data or available test data. So you're at their mercy when they say 1% accurate or 5% accurate or whatever the case may be. So it's it's really nice to hear that this service exists. And honestly, before speaking to you, I had no idea that uh, that there was someone so close to home for me who actually performed all these services. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. I mean, there's a lot of claims, I guess, and, and, and so they're in this consumer product space that is measuring health-type related information, if you will. We're not talking about medical devices, but we're talking about consumer space, and there's sort of that big gray area in between. But in that big gray area in between, consumers are really interested in accurate products. If it's monitoring their steps taken or their heart rate or their caloric output or whatever it might be, I think consumers are very interested in that. Um, and a lot of companies are making claims, but they are doing the testing, like you said, in-house. So having a third party um, that is unbiased that can do this validation work, I think, is valued by these people that we do work with. That's awesome. I have a, a little bit of a nerdy follow-up <laughs> sure. um, from from your work with Polar, and I don't, <clears throat> I'm not sure you can speak to this or not. But uh, my own experience with optical heart rate, and I, I own a Garmin, not a Polar, yeah. so maybe again, uh, experiences vary. But um, I find, and I've heard from other people too, that it's for me, it's you know maybe 60, 40 accurate when I'm running, but it's completely useless when I'm cycling. Like mm-hmm. it is, it is nowhere near accurate. And I've checked, you know, the guidelines for fit. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any insight as to why that is, or you know, is there anything I can do about it? Um, and I mostly train with a strap because I, I personally, whatever my morphology happens to yeah. be, I'm not a good candidate for optical sensors. Um, but, um, do you know why it's so much worse when I'm on the bike versus when I'm cycling or versus when I'm running or walking? Yeah, absolutely. We have some information related to that. And I can talk frankly about that because this is actually published information. Okay. Um, so we did publish a paper, uh, in medicine, science and sports and exercise, uh, related to this, this particular study. Um, so it is public information. So two things that we found that during cycling, it does work less accurately. One of the reasons, uh, Michael would be that, optical heart rate is actually measuring pulsatile flow of your blood. If you're restricting that blood flow in any way, i.e. if you're grabbing the handlebars tight on your um, with your hands, then your blood flow is actually restricted in your peripheral vessels. And therefore, oh. more than likely, more than likely, it's going to be underestimating your heart rate. Did you find that, that it was underestimating your heart rate? Yeah, yes, 100%. It would be like, you know, I'd be, I'd be, you know, working pretty hard. um, And I would be looking at like 85 beats per minute. (laughs) There's no way. (laughs) Exactly. I might be, you know, maybe not twice that, but certainly, you know, a good 50, 70%. Exactly. So I I believe in that paper, we allude to that as well, too, during cycling, if you're really gripping hard. 
Um, the other thing that we found as well too, optical heart rate takes a while to catch up to truth. Yes. Which means that if you're changing your intensity, either increasing your intensity or decreasing your intensity, it can take up to two minutes for the optical heart rate to catch up to truth. Um, either on the upswing curve or the downswing curve as well too. And that's because again, your heart starts pumping faster, your, your heart rate, your true heart rate. And by the time it gets to your peripheries, there's this delay, if you will. So we find that if somebody's doing interval training and changing intensities a lot, especially if you're going up a hill and you're like, my heart rate is really going up, but my optical heart rate isn't going up. Well, give it about a minute or two and you'll see that it'll actually catch up. So that's interesting. And one, I promise one last question about uh, optical heart rate, but um, uh, I've seen it with running often pick up cadence or track cadence very closely and be, be totally off. So, you know, I'm a fairly low cadence guy, maybe 180, 185 and no, sorry, 160, 165, 180, 185 would be pretty good for me. Um, but, and, uh, and like, I have a very good idea of my heart rate is based on perceived exertion, uh, and having done this for a while. Um, and sometimes very often I'll be running and it'll be an easy pace and I'll be seeing, you know, something that looks very much like cadence. Do you know why that happens? Um, so yeah, there's 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 a lot of errors associated with optical heart rate, and what's um, my understanding is I don't know the technology 100. We didn't do you know that comparison that you're talking about there, but okay. the error associated with optical heart rate is really associated with motion artifact. Motion artifact as you start increasing your motion of your arm as you're moving it, mm-hmm. um, there are very unique ways of filtering out that motion artifact because the sensor. The optical heart rate sensor is sensitive to that motion artifact. So some companies have done better jobs at actually filtering out that motion artifact and really um, um, trying to make sure that what it's measuring, it's measuring the truth. Right. So with that said, um, two types of motion artifact, as you start swinging your arm faster, that becomes worse and worse. But also knowing that the mounting of that wrist-based monitor for optimal heart rate it cannot be too loose. It cannot be sliding back and forth too much. You should be tightening it up to the point where it's one notch less than uncomfortable on your wrist, but not too tight right. because if you have it too tight, then it's going to be restricting the blood flow. So there are some tips and tricks to using optical heart rate, and that might be one of them as well too. So Super cool. Oh, thanks. I, uh, I you know, forgive my digression. No, no. This is just fun stuff for me. Yep. I'm I'm actually very glad you asked that because I was going to ask the same thing. Um, I was on the treadmill the other day and I was doing kind of an easy pace and I looked down and my heart rate was 175 and I thought, no, I'm not feeling like I'm doing 175 right now, but that was also my cadence. Uh, and then for the end of the run, it went up to like 199 or 205. Yep. And uh, at that point, I figured I would be in some kind of cardiac arrest if, if I had maintained that for very long. So I didn't have much trust in that. And I immediately got uh, emails from Training Peak saying, your threshold has gone up. Uh, so, but no confidence in that particular workout. But it is a good point that uh, there's a lot of technical details that still go into something like optical heart rate. And it's, uh, yeah. I would say you in some cases, you get what you pay for. If you're buying kind of a, a knockoff brand that hasn't put the R&D into proper algorithms, Correct. then you might be getting some poor data. Correct. Correct. And, and I still tell people if they really want the best heart rate, uh, use a chest strap. It's still the gold standard, if you will. Um, so because optical totally heart rate, there, there haven't been, you know, the people are still trying to solve these issues, emotion artifact and, you know, um, even different skin color as well too. 
mm-hmm. um, because there's optical heart rate. Uh, what where we didn't find that skin color really affected the accuracy, but there are a bunch of different things that cause errors in optical heart rate. So, and along the same lines, I know uh, in DC Rainmakers recent, I guess it was a keynote for what would have been in in place of the Ant Plus Symposium. Uh, but he had talked about how the SpO2 measurements, um, your oxygen saturation, are not particularly accurate for a lot of devices. So um, they're definitely not medical grade. But uh, there's this problem that that we have discussed before, Michael, about providing medical-like uh, data without the accuracy that would be required for using it for a medical purpose. Yeah, well, the prime example was would be the the folks from Core that we had on the last episode who who have uh, an emergency use authorization mm-hmm. from the U.S. government now to call themselves a medical device for the purposes of COVID screening. Right. Yeah. So there's a, there's a it sounds like there's definitely a lot of you know there's there's certainly devices that were designed in the medical space that are transitioning to the sports space and vice versa. One one prime example was um, I had a chat with our, our you know friend of the show David Tilbury Davis and he was telling me about companies who have um, the the on skin blood glucose mm-hmm. uh, monitors mm-hmm. the one the the live blood glucose yeah. monitors and they're trying to use them for um, <clears throat> in the sport context for glycogen depletion um, and there's like there's very little correlation there it's a very very weak correlation because of the the nature of how your your working muscles use glycogen and the lack of transfer between you know, the, the glycogen stored in, like, in, let's say in cycling, the glycogen that's stored in your upper arm is doing you exactly no good, <laughs> given that you're depleting the glycogen in your legs and, and maybe lower abdomen or something. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of that kind of stuff where where these devices have some potential crossover, but there are a lot of, you know, a lot of challenges involved as well. I think one of the challenges, Will, too, as you guys speak sort of from that medical device to the consumer space world, you'd think it would be easy because these medical devices have been, you know, medically certified, if you will. One of the big problems in that you remember is that medical devices typically are used on people lying in a bed, SpO2 and heart rate Mm. and things like that. Motion wreaks havoc once you start moving around. So once you start moving into the exercise world, SpO2 all of a sudden doesn't work very well because of motion. And same with optical heart rate as well, too. If you were just lying there in bed, optical heart rate would work great, you know. But as soon as you start moving... That's what that's what starts wreaking havoc with uh, with the accuracy of these systems. So that's an excellent point. Yeah, and I did actually notice the same thing because a few years ago, when I was um, doing some R and D with Stack, we had a co op student looking at this, but he was trying to separate your respiration rate from optical heart rate data. So there there were a few papers detailing how to do this, but really the motion artifacts were the most difficult thing. So we could actually pick it up pretty accurately when someone was at rest, but as soon as you start to move the data is just garbage. It's almost impossible to recognize anything through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was it was an interesting attempt. Um, there's some neat science out there, but unfortunately, a lot of it is kind of relegated to the, the laboratory or to static uh, static test subjects at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's, um, let's take a bit of a dive into, I guess, a case study, which I would be very curious to go over, but uh, actually how we got introduced. So the, the work you had done with Ken Fife and with Dynastream previously in developing the, the running foot pod, which was kind of one of the first portable uh, electronics of its kind. It was um, it led the way for a lot of this fitness technology and the wearable electronics that we're now so accustomed to. But yeah, um, yeah if you don't mind just going over some of the process, how they got in contact with you, what kind of testing you did. Um, and how you helped them develop the product. I'd be very interested to hear about that. 
Sure. So with Dynastream back in the day, like you said, about almost 20 years ago, I'm not going to take any credit for any kind of development of that product. I'll give full uh, kudos to Ken Fife for that. Um, but so I was an employee of Dynastreams back in, in the day, probably about 20 years ago and, and uh, around that time frame. But my role there was a, a product manager, business development manager, various different roles. But you're right, Dynastream and the invention that Ken actually uh, had made was the first um, foot-mounted speed distance sensor um, that historically was introduced to market via Nike uh, back in, um, I guess it was the late 90s, early 2000 timeframe. Um, and, and that particular product was way ahead of its time when it comes to the use of technology and sort of understanding the history of sensors and, and where th- that space started way back in the day was it was using accelerometers, just accelerometers, not IMUs, to uh, and some very unique algorithms that Ken developed to actually accurately monitor uh, speed and distance um, of a runner. And it was a little foot pod that actually went through the shoelaces um, and send a signal wirelessly to to a watch that was uh, using a Dynastream developed uh, wireless protocol. And um, yeah, that was the first um, introduction in the market of, of a device like an odometer, if you will. Uh, for human as they were walking and running to give them very specific information related to their uh, to their exercise. So um, accelerometers back back then um, were, were um, an item that was quite pricey um, as a as a technology itself too because they were not being mass manufactured in any way. So concurrent with the development of this specific foot pod. Um, if it wasn't for one specific industry that was mass consuming accelerometers, then this product wouldn't probably be, have been a, a, a consumer viable product because of cost. But it was concurrent to the automotive industry back then, um, mass consuming accelerometers to put them all over cars for deployment of airbags. Um, then these accelerometers were being manufactured in the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions. So Dynastream was able to piggyback on on that to um, to get a technology that was uh, reasonably priced to put into a product that was uh, then reasonably priced for consumer product. So um, now this this day and age, um, so the foot pod has been replaced by uh, a wrist based system that is using GPS to measure you know speed and distance and things like that. So um, again, back then GPS was not um, a, a viable technology to use because of costs and other things like that um, in risk-based uh, products. So that's sort of a little bit of history of, of how that um, that product came to be in the market. But since then, um, there's, you know, hundreds of companies that are using similar technologies to to be able to uh, monitor human movement, if you will. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting to see where we came from there and how it was the automotive industry industry that really allowed that technology to proliferate. So it's, um, yeah, the, the volumes that we're dealing with in sport tech just don't compare to automotive. So it's it's purely um, the uh, the economics of the mass scale manufacturing that make it possible. So it is mm-hmm. nice to have that ability to be tangential to something like that. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I still use a foot pod. I prefer it to GPS in terms of getting pace when you're uh, under trees, for example, and may not have a great GPS signal or in a city or even on a treadmill. Um, but I can't seem to find any of them anywhere. So they don't seem to be for sale anymore. 
What uh, system are you? What system have you tried to use? Or it was branded Timex, but mm. uh, it is a Dynastream chip in there. Mm, but okay. um, yeah, they just don't seem to be on sale anymore. I can't find them anywhere. I can get you a Garmin Footpod. That's easy. Okay, <laughs> they have Garmin. Um, either that or or you know play around with uh, play around with Stride. I mean, Stride That's, is more than a Footpod, yeah. but. Um, there's a couple of other systems that, that might be interesting. There's for a couple of other systems that I've used before. There's a system called Runscribe, which is another pod-based system. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't find that to be as accurate, but another system that I've just recently tried is the Leomo system. Um, that is a multi-pod system, and I think you guys had done something mm-hmm. with Leomo recently. But um, yeah, the, I, I find that that system is quite accurate. So you get certain metrics from the foot pod. You'll get it from the GPS as well too. But then you can compare the metrics that come from your foot pod versus your GPS and and see you know what the difference is but it's quite accurate from from my initial uh, taking a look at the Leomo system. Mm-hmm. So in some of the current testing that you're doing for manufacturers you mentioned the the product feel as being a big part of it and I think everyone can identify with the fact that if you pick up something that isn't well built that you'll you'll notice that immediately but there's a lot more to feel than just picking up a product. Um, so in, in one of the previous discussions we had uh, off air we were talking about how sound comes into play and how mm-hmm. um, all of these other sensory inputs that you wouldn't normally associate with performance, but a lot of this goes into the testing. So what kind of things do you look for when you're, when you're testing a new product like this? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, if we were talking about making measurements on people using three-dimensional video cameras, high-speed video systems, or, you know, physiologic systems that was measuring, that's important. But one of the things that is overlooked a lot of times is is the 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 sensory perceptions of a product whatever that product is and those sensory perceptions could be could be feeling could be tactile could be auditory could be smell um and could be vision as well too so in terms of all the senses Hmm. and all of those play a big role in a consumer's initial decision whether or not they would buy that product first of all especially vision as well too you're not going to buy a butt ugly product i guess if you will (laughs) but with that said, there are specific situations that I can give some some examples of how auditory comes into play as well too with a product and the use of a product. So we, we are very interested in evaluating all those things in parallel to when this individual is using a product and they're hooked up to a bunch of machines that we can make any kind of measurements we need to about that human being as they're moving or as they're breathing or their heart is beating or whatever we're always going to get information about their perception, about their perception of the function of that product. So um, I think we had discussed this briefly before, but as an example in the golf industry, the sound of a driver, um, the the ping, the, the sound of it, and ping is actually a company as well too. That's where sort of that name comes from. But really the the sound of the driver, if it sounds tinny or golfers will will mention that is a very important piece to that. I mean, they could be driving the ball 20 more yards than you know they have been in their driver, but if that sound isn't right to them, they're not going to buy it. They're not going to be interested because that is going to throw them off as well too. So in that specific situation, sound is a very important thing. As another example in sound as well too, runners, they'll go out for a run and they will say, my foot sounds slappy. Um, it just doesn't sound right, right? And even though they might be running faster um, or they might be performing better, they're not going to be able to get over that sound. And more than likely, they're not going to use those shoes anymore because their foot sounds slappy. Um, and it, it shouldn't sound like that to them. It should sound like nothing. Maybe they shouldn't be hearing anything. Um, so 
we, we take for granted a lot of times people's perceptions, but we don't um, at Sport Product Testing. We're always interested in capturing that kind of information through dialogues with these people, questioning them. Um, so for any kind of product that we do testing on, we also collect data and information related to to the feel of the product, if you will. I too am not a fan of slapping shoes. <laughs> I, uh, I, w- I totally would put my hand up and like that's that's a big turn off. As, or the worst thing is when you're running beside somebody in a race yeah. who's got slappy <laughs> shoes. Like I will like I will bl- I will throw my race plan out the window in order to get away from that individual. Yeah. Because especially in a long race, that gets really for me for my ears in a race context is very annoying. Have you raced next to me? Because I've I've been told I have very. Are you a slappy? Yeah, I'm also actually kind of slappy too. So I'm, I'm. It's it's the thing like we hate the thing about our you know the things we hate most are the things that we find in ourselves or something. So like that. in a way, this actually has had a limited impact on my performance where I've become self-conscious about it. So when I'm coming up behind someone, I try to lighten my footstep and it's, I think it's more my form than the actual product, (laughs) but uh, I try to change my gait a little bit so that I'm not as slappy. Um, And maybe you should, part of it is trying to surprise them and not let them (laughs) get that extra. No, you should, you should, you should slap more because that'll like irritate them and throw them off their game. Maybe they'll speed up. In my context. They might speed up or they might slow down. So, but, what, one thing that jumps out at me when I obviously the sla- uh, slappy shoes aside is um, I briefly tested a Sunto watch, which I found to be, you know, different from Garmin and like, you know, pros and cons. But one of the things that jumped out at me right away was how heavy it was. Mm. And it was, you know, uh, I think the watch I wear now is somewhere in the high 40s grams, okay. 47, 49, something like that. It's like one of the smaller Garmin multi-sport watches. And this thing was around 90 grams or high 80s. And I really could tell the difference, especially when I was running. And it felt like I had, you know, like a, a, some kind of mass on my wrist that was, you know, that I could I could always feel. And that and that feeling never went away. Like I, I ran with it for probably four months and I, I always like could feel it on my wrist. Whereas when I went back to the Garmin, um, that feeling went away that's i mean yeah yeah, good point i'm you know the weight is very important the the weight of a shoe is very important as well too obviously right so but even that that feeling and your perception of that weight that you know there's there's the feeling of but on the flip side there's the lack of feeling and that's what people a lot of times if they are not if they say this run was great because because of why said because i didn't think of anything right? I didn't feel pain or I didn't feel Mm -hmm. heaviness in my wrist or whatever. That makes for a great user experience. So a lot of companies are trying to understand what the ill feelings are, but if people do not have feelings or are not projecting them, then that's an important piece as well too. So the lack of is also important, not only, um, you know, what you're feeling. So in your case, if you weren't feeling your watch on your wrist, that was something good for you. But that Sunto watch that you had on there because it weighed, you know, 20% heavier than what you're used to, you know, you, you, you couldn't forget about it because every time you, right. you know, you knew you were putting that watch on. So you're like, oh, this, this is going to be heavy on my wrist again. So, <laughs> And on the flip side of that, actually, there's a lot of people who associate weight or at least density with quality. Um, a friend of mine totally. recently upgraded from, I think it was a, an Apple Watch Series 3 to the Series 6. And went from the stainless steel housing to the aluminum. Uh, and she was saying that it just feels like it's not there. It feels cheaper. <laughs> it feels like it's going to break all the time because it's not as substantial. Um, so 
it's with sports tech, we're usually looking for lighter and sleeker, but uh, there might be the opposite perception in some other industries too. Well, I think lighter and sleeker as well, going back to our first points about optical heart rate and movement, the inertia of a bigger product is co- going to move more uh, and more than like, I haven't done an evaluation of this, but I'm just uh, you know speculating that it might cause more errors. So yeah, that's, that's definitely an interesting viewpoint to take there. So what are... Um, what are some of the feedback metrics that you ask your athletes? Because I assume you rely a lot on having this this direct input, uh, input from the athletes, from their perception. And because a lot of it is subjective, um, how do you condition them to make sure you, not condition, but how do you make sure that they're providing the right input for you, that they're looking for the right things and providing the feedback that you're actually looking for? Yeah, that's an art in itself. I mean, you know, when you, when you do questioning, um, of, of individuals, you, you know, you don't want to consider that a soft science versus sort of a, a hard science, I guess, if you will. But there's different ways of, of getting information from them. I mean, you could use you could use questionnaires that are scaled questionnaires um, that are asking them specific questions and based on a couple of anchor points. And the anchor points that you actually use. So if you're actually saying, you know, as an example, sort of a generic example uh, on a scale of one to seven. How would you rate this shoe in terms of comfort if you're using comfort as a term? And then you can define comfort for them. And then, you know, on, on, the, on, the, on the one scale, it would be, you know, the least comfortable shoe you've ever worn. And on the seven scale might be the most comfortable shoe you've ever worn. So you can start getting information on a scale system that way. However, I think that, you know, that sort of guides people down a path that you're actually asking these particular questions. Another way that we actually like um, doing, um, interviews is open-ended questions, rolling a video camera and asking some open-ended questions and probing deeper and deeper into those open-ended questions to really start understanding what they're feeling, how they're feeling and probing in. If they say, I feel hot, well, can you describe that in more detail, a certain body location or whatever? Um, now analyzing that kind of data is more difficult than analyzing a scale data or a number that you get out of a force plate or a motion capture camera. Um, but it's very, very important information. So I find that one of the best ways of getting information back from people is using open-ended questioning um, to really start understanding and probing. Summarizing that data becomes a little difficult across a group of mm-hmm. people, but you can gra- you can gather some, some really excellent insights on on what's uh, what's going on, and you can generalize as well too. If you're collecting data on ten people or twenty people, you can actually say, well, you know, fifteen out of those twenty people describe this, right? So, or are using this kind of word to describe um, their feeling and stuff like that. So, yeah, immediately the kind of the the application of word clouds comes to mind when you start doing stuff Absolutely. like that. Like, can you? Yep. Yeah, can you start counting incidents of a specific word in a description? Yeah, then that's exactly what we do. We would count specific incidents of the word. We would also be interested in um, knowing hierarchically how they use those words, in what order they use those words as well, too, hmm. right? So that's another way of looking at that as well, too. But you can glean some great insights, Michael, exactly what you said, creating some sort of word cloud, if you will, and really understanding um, you know, what words people were using to describe their, their feelings. And are there certain p- types of people who are better suited to provide this feedback with, uh, like, would engineers be better or would it be elite athletes or um, amateur athletes? Is there a group that you find does well or a group that's 
particularly painful to work with. In general, and I'm going to sort of shoot ourselves in the foot, all being males here, but females tend to do a better job. <laughs> I'm not surprised by that <laughs> at, all. at all. And, yeah. and the thing is that, um, you know, they're just better at describing their feelings, right? When it comes to that. And so, yeah, generally it's kind of interesting. I sort of chuckle at that, but, you know, you get a group of females versus males. And if one of your questions is looking at differences between the genders, um, they tend to do a better job at describing um, on that. Now, when it comes to engineers versus athletes versus different people, again, you know, we, a lot of times we'll get engineers and biomechanists and other people like that, that might be parts of these studies. Then we know each other and stuff like that. And, and they'll give very specific feedback that's related to biomechanics and engineering terms and things like that, that, that are used. So, and we don't want that because not, all consumers are engineers or biomechanists, or most aren't probably. Um, so we, we try and get a blend of people. So their their background is important as well, too, um, in, in terms of gathering this type of feedback for sure. So, Yeah, that's such a big part of it is finding the right people to provide this feedback because you could have a bias one way or another if you use the same the same pool of testers all the time. Yep. And yep. yeah, I can't even imagine trying to get around some of those challenges. We actually have a large database of, of subjects that we can pick from. I think it's nearing 500 or over 500 right now. So depending on you know the demographic and whatever the specifics are of the product that we have to be tested on, if it's going to be a runner or a cyclist or a non-athlete or whatever it might be, we can we really have a, a deep database of that. But with that said, um, you know, making sure that you're 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 targeting at least the, the population that that particular product could be targeted towards. That's an important piece. Um, for working with with these companies to to understand what what kind of data they want to actually get and what target population they actually want to get it from um, is is an important thing. So I'm just wondering. It sounds like you've got a big pool, but um, would you be interested in if there's any listeners local to the Calgary area uh, becoming part of that pool? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to our website uh, sportproducttesting.com, and I think there's a, a page in there that actually is for participants, and you can send an email, and we can put you part of that database. So, yeah, I, actually, I think I might. Andrew, are you putting your hand up? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can see me somehow. <laughs> yeah, I'd be very interested in being part of this, and I'm sure, like just based on the discussions we've had in the past, and the the listeners, the type of listeners that we have, that there would be some other people who are interested as well. So. I think it'd be pretty neat to help bring some more awareness to that kind of testing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think most of the people that uh, come to us are, has the same philosophy. They're just interested in, in helping out and being part of that. And it's exciting to be part of it, um, you know, for various different studies. So yeah, we'll put you on the list, Andrew. Excellent. <laughs> so pro, uh, what about things in development? I know you probably, uh, you've got some NDAs to, <laughs> to, to worry about, but anything that you can talk about in terms of, you know, interesting things on the horizon or more broadly exciting technologies that you're, um, that you're looking forward to helping develop? Um, I can't talk about specifically things that are on the horizon or things that are on the go right now because of the NDA uh, side of things. So nothing specific. However, broad topic wise, um, I have a keen interest and, and have a belief that there is a huge opportunity for uh, us being involved in data analytics, Data analytics as it relates to understanding better or helping companies understand better, um, like we started talking about at the beginning of this chat, um, these wearable devices collect so much data. And 
I think that a, a fraction of it is either being used by the consumer or understood by the consumer, but really understanding how all this data is related to health performance um, is, is a very interesting avenue that I really believe is important and that we will be also pursuing um, with that said. So that's sort of a high, high level topic of, of an area of, of interest that I believe is important and we'll be, we'll be pursuing. So. Well, we have discussed this before, what data is actually useful for an athlete and what is noise. Um, so it's, it is interesting to know that there's active research going in on that because there's so much that's provided to people that they just don't know what to do with it. And cycling power meters are a great example where you get mm. pedal smoothness and torque effectiveness. And like, what does that even mean? Even to an engineer, that barely means anything. Right. So <laughs> how do you turn that into actionable data and, and use it for coaching and improving your performance and I, this is not a question for you. This is more of a rhetorical question, just stating like, how do we use all this data that's available to us? And I think the big missing piece there, Andrew, is in terms of where technology has gone and and sort of that, well, we can put any kind of technology into a, a, your wrist to measure your speed and your distance and your heart rate and goes on and on from there, right? Um, these sensors are available. They're very inexpensive to put in. So all these companies are putting it in. It's collecting all this data. The missing piece is that us understanding what this data means to help that consumer, that athlete become better, right? And I think we have to take it one piece of sort of group of per sensor, per data stream, whatever it might be to understand how that data is related to good and bad and how that can make that person better, better defined by that consumer as I want to lose weight or I want to run this 10k faster or whatever that goal is we don't understand that we don't understand enough about how that data can be used um so we've leaped from let's put all this technology in let's gather all this data and then the consumer is looking at this going this tracks my steps and my distance and all this stuff that's great for every run what is it telling me about me to become better if i want to become faster or you know skinnier or whatever it might be um that's the missing piece. So the analytics piece to how it's related to making that individual better is the missing piece because we've sort of jumped into, well, we can give all this information to the consumer, but what does it actually mean? Yeah. And I think the other component is, and maybe that this even comes first, is making sure that that, that information is reliable, right? Like the, the, whole, the, the garbage in, garbage out yep. sort of way of thinking. Because a lot of the, you know, a prime example would be optical heart rate, right? right? Um, we, we talked about how there are, there are still, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the gold standard for a reason. So if you're, if you're having, you know, if you, if your watch or device gives you performance metrics, well, it has to be a watch if it's optical, well, mostly, um, it's, if it's giving you sort of advice, training advice based on optical heart rate data, and there are some artifacts in that data mm -hmm. that are not the truth, um, then that advice is useless. So being able to parse those, uh, um, you know, parse the, parse that information and, and exclude potentially the the data that isn't accurate is is you know something that I think has to happen even before we start trying to figure out how we can use this. Yeah, data. absolutely, you're right, Michael. And as a matter of fact, that's a good example on optical heart rate. Another good example is all these devices, wrist force devices. Uh, even a worse example is uh, caloric output. Right? Mm -hmm. All these manufacturers oh, yeah. are giving oh, you yeah. caloric output, but you say, oh yeah, as a consumer. And they're still putting it in there and consumers know it's garbage, <laughs> but they're still putting it in there. 
right? So, well, some consumers know it's garbage. <laughs> some consumers, know. I would, I would like not to toot my own horn, but I would say that I'm probably a more, you know, uh, better educated consumer in, in this space yeah. than, than maybe some. And then we get back to we get back to that gray area in the middle between medical devices and these consumer wearable products that we were talking about. And maybe a physician wants to use a product to track caloric output for their patients and stuff like that. But really, we don't know the boundaries around the reliability and accuracy of these products to make a recommendation back to a, uh, a physician to say, you know, you should be using the Garmin whatever or the Polar whatever or whatever it might be because it seems to have or, or it is by our testing seems to have, you know, better accuracy. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And the perfect example was actually what I had brought up before where I had done this run and it, the training peaks came back and said your threshold heart rate has actually gone up from – I think it was like 175 or 178 before to 195. And yeah, based on one run that had some garbage. That's data. biologically impossible. Yeah, yeah. And it would be very easy for a person to detect that that's wrong if they have the knowledge to know that that's not possible. Um, and likewise, I think AI could probably pick that up reasonably well. But uh, if you're providing this information without checks and balances to people, they may take it for granted that it's accurate. So if I didn't know what I was doing. And all of a sudden I go and run a race and say, yeah, my threshold heart rate is 190. I'm going to keep pushing till I get to 190. Um, I am not going to make it through that race in a, well, probably going to go straight to the hospital if I try to do that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's a question of even providing dangerous information to people when it comes yeah. to performance. Yeah. 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 You said it, Andrew. I think it's, it's, it's and often is worse than useless <laughs> because useless would just be, you know, I can, you know, this is just not telling me anything that's going to help me. But if it tells you, like your example is perfect. If it tells you something that's actively incorrect, and then you try to use that data in your training or your racing, a hundred percent, you can make you can make things worse for yourself, and you can go down bad paths and and have it be very counterproductive. So this is something pro. This is like our our one of our pet topics. That's like it's heat transfer, aerodynamics, and yeah. and useless metrics. That's what we <laughs> useless. We now now we have, have it, we another definition called uh, dangerous metrics. Now, right? So useless versus dangerous. Yes, dangerous. Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> dangerous yeah. metrics. That's right. Yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting to take a look at all of this. And probably, I know you can't provide any more detail about it, but uh, taking a big look at the, the data that would be provided to athletes and how to make that more useful, like that's a huge problem to tackle, but someone needs to be looking at it. So it, it might as well start here or it might as well start with whoever is uh, working with you. Yeah, I mean, and you have to take it in, you know, bite-sized pieces, uh, Andrew, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge problem, but how do you take it in those bite-sized pieces? I think that you look at a data stream, let's choose optical heart rate for the sake of, we started talking about optical heart rate. Let's choose that. And let's do a deep dive into the information and data and how that's related to. So you're taking a deep dive there and then let's move on to the next, uh, you know, next, uh, variable, if you will. But I think that's the only way to sort of take it rather than trying to take everything mm-hmm. um, and then try to di- digest it all. So, And I suspect it's a bit of a race where uh, companies are t- striving to introduce new metrics that uh, are, haven't been properly vetted or pre- properly understood. So you're trying to do the deep dive on something that's already become maybe not obsolete, but people are looking one or two steps in the future and they're looking at sensor data that's not not accurate or not meaningful in any way. Yeah. And, you know, they're, you know, we're, we're trying to do understand and trying to do a deep dive into, into things like that. Um, 
and there's always new things coming up. But um, I think that in terms of the old stuff, there still can a lot that can be done to understand rather than introducing new. So um, I don't think we're going to see any kind of, you know, you might see new sensors and other things like that. But I think that we've just been, I hope that these companies understand that we've, we have as consumers as well, too, speaking as a consumer, I've been inundated with the capabilities and the possibilities with all these different sensors. Let's just pull the reins back a little bit and let's, let's try to understand what we can get rather than trying to invent some, some new sensor and new technology that does something different. I couldn't agree with you more on that, on that note, pro. I think, I think there's no, you know, I think technology has advanced sports training and racing, at least, you know, both on an amateur and a professional level tremendously in the last like 30 years with, you know, GPS heart rate, Mm -hmm. football's power. Um, and I think we've come a very long way and I'm not, I'm never one to really pump the brakes on that kind of stuff. But I think you make an excellent point that there's just so much out there right now that we still, you know, we, we, that, that folks seem to be including in their, in their devices for the sake of maybe just com- competition, maybe yeah, as Andrew said, yeah. and uh, rather than actually truly, truly improving the user experience. So I think there's a, there's definitely a lot of room there to grow for, for all of these folks and for us. Yeah. And again, the user experience related to the data and again, how that's how that's going to make that person a, a better whatever they're trying to be a better. That, that's it. Yeah. It's, it's just data right now that's coming, right? It's not telling you anything more than how many steps you're taking or your heart rate or whatever else. So, As a personal pet peeve, I want to call out uh, any watch that measures temperature uh, because it ranges somewhere <laughs> in between your body temperature and the outside temperature and doesn't seem to correlate to either of them. Yeah. Nope, it's in the middle. That's right. That's why I actually I actually bought a Garmin has a, uh, a remote temperature sensor that you were, that looks like a foot pod, yep. and I actually bought one for the summer because I was just getting so annoyed because this summer was really hot in Toronto, and it was like there were day there were like continuous days where it was thirty plus plus humidity and sunlight. Where does that sensor um, go? And on your foot, on your shoe, it's like a foot pod. Oh, so it measures the ambient, not your skin temperature. Ambient. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, no, it's no because, but that's what the the watch sensors that Andrew's talking about. They're meant to measure ambient, not skin. Ah, uh-huh. but it's it's you're 100 right, Andrew. It's like it's always somewhere in between. <laughs> I've found that too. Um, the edge units, the ones the yep. the bike computers which sit in free air, those are really okay. good for the most part um, because they're you know they're not touching anything that's you know anything that's you. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've actually fixed that problem by spending, by throwing more money at it. <laughs> That's the way athletes do fix problems. <laughs> Especially triathletes and cyclists. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually on that note, I'm very, very interested to test out the core body temperature sensor that, um, that we talked about last episode. Well, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, uh, sweet talk him into giving us a unit so that we can, <laughs> so we can test it and, and then, uh, do an episode about what it. is the, uh, uh, this is an interesting, what is the product that that um, was a core, like a pill that you swallow and gives you. No, it's actually a surface oh, mounted temperature sensor. Oh. So I've used some of the, the pill versions in, uh, yeah, in lab testing and they are super expensive from what I understand. They're very hard to get as well. Like they're having supply issues last year and they're for obvious reasons, one-time use, um, so it's, it's not really practical for athletes to use, but, uh, this, uh, temperature sensor, it's based on, uh, heat flux rather than skin temperature. Okay. Um, so I don't know their exact algorithm and obviously that's proprietary, but, uh, it's a thermoelectric generator. So a Peltier device that's, uh, being used 
to determine your core body temperature. So you can place it in a few different locations and they've got different algorithms for the different locations, but it will try to infer your core body temperature. And based on their testing and the data that they've provided, it seems to be just about as accurate as any other device you can get um, to measure core body temperature. They're claim- I was just because I'm on the emails between Core and and Erica, so I introduced the two of them, Andrew, mm-hmm. and so they've been exchanging emails, and I've been kind of the fly on the wall <laughs> on, on those emails. So they're claiming an accuracy pro of uh, plus or mi- plus or minus 0.21 centigrade, I okay. think, which is really wow. really quite ambitious. Wow. Um, and if they, they looks like they have the, uh, the background testing, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to let Erica do the actual heavy lifting on that one. And then a couple months down the road, cause I think she might actually get a device for her testing. So Erica is a PhD student from university of Ontario doing a lot of, um, thermal comfort and thermal performance research in athletics. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to let her do all the heavy lifting and then I'll, uh, I'll bug her to see what her thoughts are on it. Cause she would be an independent kind of um, independent uh, resource on this. Yeah, so lots of exciting stuff coming. Although we've got to yeah. be cautious about what we do adopt, as we just. Discussed. <laughs> um, so it's it's taking that uh, that excitement, I guess, and tempering it a little bit, but and just using the data we have. But no, I've I think this has been a fantastic discussion. Yeah, I agree. I echo Andrew. I think this has been a very useful kind of peek behind the curtains on the uh, some of the product development side that uh, people may not you know, may not be privy to otherwise. Well, I thank you very much, guys, for for your time. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting, interesting conversation for sure for my part too. Absolutely. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you, um, the best way is to go to sportproducttesting.com, correct? Yep. Sportproducttesting, all one word together, no dashes.com. Excellent. Well, hopefully some of our listeners are interested and want to follow up more with you and have maybe some of their own products that we're working on. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, bro. And uh, listeners, as always, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, If you enjoy the show, leave us a rating uh, and a review at iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And if you really like the show, do consider supporting us on Patreon. And that's patreon.com slash endurance innovation. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.